Welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. This is Tim Winders, your host. I'm a coach for business owners, executives, and leaders. My wife and I consider ourselves nomads. We currently travel, live, and work in our 39-foot RV. Today, however, I'm recording this in a stationary spot just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm visiting uh, my parents here. I want to make sure that you listen to the end of the podcast, please. We will include ways that you can continue the conversation that we're going to start today, and we're going to tell you how you can connect with us directly. Make sure that you do that. Today, we have Alai Hunkins as our guest. Alai builds strong leaders. He is a leadership guy. Over his 20-plus year career, he has led over 2,000 groups in 25 countries. His clients include Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm, Insurance, IBM, General Motors, and Microsoft. All big dogs there. Man, oh man, that's impressive. He has designed and facilitated seminars on numerous leadership topics, including team building, conflict management, communication, peak performance, innovation, engagement, and change. We're facing some change in the world right now. We're really going to have a discussion about that. Eli serves on the faculty of Duke Corporate Education, ranked number two worldwide in 2019 by Financial Times on the list of customized executive education programs. Eli, welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. Hey, Tim. Thanks so much. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Thanks. Yeah, that is that is quite the bio, and I want to be truthful. I actually gleaned from your bigger bio to get it even mm-hmm. down to that, and I gave you a little bit of heads up on this, but our audience knows this is like this is what I like to do first. You and I are on an elevator. We've got about four floors to go up. We look over, and I say, hmm, what do you? What do you do? Give us your elevator speech. What What do you really do? Sure. Um, so I help high achieving people become high achieving leaders. And the way I do that is by marrying the science of high performance with the performing art of leadership. So science and art, that sounds exciting. Good. Well, thank you for that. And you've actually practiced that. You know, I asked that of a lot of people in Four minutes later, we're still, I'm going, this elevator is not that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I just heard today? This is, this is, a, this is related, but it's a slight, it's a little joke. And hey, you know what? Someone said, it's like stairs only in a box. It's the original <laughs> elevator pitch, right? It's like stairs only in a box and you go up. It's an elevator pitch. I love that. Yeah, I don't think so. And we're in such a weird world. <laughs> we're in such a weird, weird world too. We're not sure if people are even going to be able to get on elevators much, <laughs> much yeah. here. So, hey, listen, you are in. Uh, we we've got. I, I want to really dive into and and I'll say it this way: crack the leadership code here shortly. I just did a finish reading of your book, Cracking the Leadership Code. So we're going to talk about that as we move along. But before we do that, I love to, you even said at the beginning of your book, the story behind your story. I love to really understand what, what people's perspective is, their paradigms, how they came to be who they are. So currently you are uh, in or just outside of Amsterdam. Why don't you just give us a current status of what's going on with you and your family and, you know, in an odd world we're in here, currently summer of 2020, this might air closer to the fall, but, uh, but tell us what's going on with you. 
Yeah. So I am living in a small city called Leiden in the Netherlands, just south of Amsterdam. And I've been here with my family since July of 2018, so two years, and we're American. And my wife had lived in Europe for six years before we met. And she said, we should move to Europe sometime. And I said, that sounds great. Um, how's it going to work? And so I kept putting her off. And then we had small kids. And then I really put her off for a while. And the kids kept getting older and older. They're now 16 and 14. So that must have been this about four or five years ago. And I realized if we don't make this happen, this is going to be one of those dreams that just came and went and we just never did anything with. And so I said, okay, I'm game. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how work's going to work out. But if we can figure out a way to go. And then we kind of took this leap of faith, which I realized is a lot like what you do when you decide, if you decide to have children. Because any parent will tell you, if you wait until everything is perfect, you would never have a child. Right? You have to, in some ways, you just have to jump and then figure it out. So as we did. So we moved over here and it's been fantastic. It's expanded all of our minds. I'm thrilled that my two teenage kids now have had this experience because they are now global citizens. And, you know, all of us, we see the world in a different way. And, you know, and particularly this year with the pandemic going on around the world and just how different people respond is just, there's nothing like being and living somewhere else to force you to shift your perspective and how you think about stuff. So that's yeah. how we ended up here. That's very cool. So, so the catalyst, I'm always intrigued by the catalyst for a change like that. So the catalyst was, if we don't do it now, we may not ever do it, or it's the, it's the right time. Was there any other catalyst involved? Yeah, the, cat, the catalyst was, yeah, I mean, part of it was we were running out of time. If we want to do this with our kids as an intact family was certainly the catalyst. And frankly, I needed to get comfortable enough with the uncertainty. I was, I was, I'm the more risk averse, the two of us. My wife would have been ready to go. Like, let's go, let's go now. She's like, we'll figure it out. That's not how I roll. I'm much more risk averse as a person. And so I was not comfortable with it until I realized we're going to be okay. You know, it's going to be okay. And I just had to take a big breath and, you know, we planned as much as we could and then we went for it. So those two things, I think it was for me also, is just letting go of my own fear to get to this place of saying, let's do this. We can make it happen. So I've got two questions related to that. Currently, I could have more in just a second. First of all, you mentioned planning. I wanted to ask, did you plan well? Uh, and I always dig when I've got like people like me, you know, leadership planners, you help organizations and people yeah. reach their highest peak performance. And then I hear you say, yeah, we planned it out. And then I really want to kind of peel back. How did your planning go for this transition? Well, you know, we planned what we could plan. So we picked the country based on where could we live legally. We came over, we found uh, schools for the kid. We found, you know, which we didn't do before they were born. We didn't pick our house based on school districts and all that. Like, we didn't know any of that stuff then. But yeah, we, so we planned all that stuff out. So for me, the thing that got funny is I had a few contacts work-wise and they said, oh yeah, we have contacts with clients in Europe. When you get over there, we'll have plenty of work for you. Well, I come over here, crickets, like crickets from there. And then I had to kind of work another part of my network. And then it turned out that the work that I ended up getting mainly to pay the bills for the family came from a place I wasn't expecting. So, which oftentimes is the case, right? So another opportunity opened up. So yeah, it was planned and a lot of other things shifted along the way for sure. For yeah, sure. That's good. Yeah. And you, and you were able to do that. All right. So, th so then my next question is, 
I know that there are listeners going, they did this with teenagers. Yeah. Because they, listen, I know, let's go ahead and project what a lot of people might be thinking. Um, I, if I discuss moving to a different school, my, my teenager is going to go bonkers. If I, if we talk about doing a vacation, they don't want to leave their friends. So how did that work with, I mean, this is, this could be like our biggest leadership lesson right here. How did you lead a, a couple of teenagers to make a transition to go from the U S to Europe for two years? Yeah. So this is a great question. This could be the whole conversation because I think that parenting and leadership, they're such great mirrors for each other because you're doing a lot of the same stuff. So first of all, at the time, just to be clear, we only had one teenager. It was They were 14 and 11 when we came over. But that being said, so we told them we're coming over for a year, possibly two. So just to be uh, transparent, we are actually moving back to the U.S. And people are saying, why are you moving back to the U.S.? Because we actually made an agreement with our kids that we weren't going to turn them into Europeans long term. Now, if you ask my wife and I, would you stay? Yeah, we love it here. We probably might look into staying, but we promised them that they could have the teenage experience in the small, lovely town in Western Mass, Northampton Mass, where they live and grown up. So they're going back. So they knew that was so that was part of it. Um, how we convinced them, right? It's funny. Is it not convinced? Is so. This has a lot to do with our parenting philosophy, and I'm going to give my wife 99% of the credit on this. I mean, she brought it up, and I went, "That sounds great." I have no idea how to do this, but she was really clear. And I have to back up for a second. One thing she remembers from her childhood was hitting about six or seven years old. And at the time, until then, it was like the golden years. And then suddenly her parents, like a lot of our parents, like they expected things of us. Like, you got to do this, go do this. And then what they engaged in, what many of us, most of us have experienced is power struggle. And she remembers when the sun, that golden sunlight just faded away. And she said, I will never parent that way. And she, and she remembers that. And like, I don't remember that even going on. It was so embedded in me because that's what most of us have had. Right. And we kind of laugh about it. Like, yeah, you think your child is bad. My parent, right. right? We all know that stuff. So she decided if she was going to have biological children and raise them, that he was not going to engage in power struggle, which frankly takes a lot of patience and a lot of time because you can't resort to because I'm the mommy that's why or I'm the daddy that's why like you just can't go there because what if you go there what'll happen is you, you'll get compliance and then there'll be teenagers and they'll stop complying right so, so, that's so you're what, not going to go down the authori- authoritarian leadership dictator yeah. model is that what you're saying <laughs> that's what I'm saying and here's the thing because people hear that sometimes like what oh you you're, it doesn't mean that your kids get to do whatever they want but it's about treating them with a baseline level of respect that they know that they are being treated like humans who deserve respect from the earliest of ages. In fact, when my kids have been around, whether it's friends or relatives or, you know, who are like, come on here, you got like, they're like, excuse me, why are you talking to me this way? Like they just don't, doesn't compute, you know, because, and they also, the other thing that with my kids, they are amazing around small little kids because they don't, you know, a lot of, I know for me, when I was 13, 14, I wanted nothing to do with small children because it was like, oh, I want to hang out with like my friends and just be away. Like, you know, but my kids, because they were respected at those ages. So they are cool with that. And I, again, I credit my wife for so much of that, but that is a big reason they're willing to go along. And we have family conversations. Now, everyone gets a voice, they don't necessarily get a vote, 
but they get a voice, right? So it's not, we're not a democracy. You know, our family is not a democracy and we like to think that we're, you know, in enlightened authoritarianism, right, as parents. So that's, uh, that's a big part of, of how we ended up in this situation where, you know, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have terrible twos. And so far, knock on wood, our kids aren't massive. I mean, if our kids are going to rebel, it's like they don't have anything to rebel against too much. You know, and I'm sure we'll have, you know, and we've been really lucky in that way. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful. And again, I'm not here to prescribe parenting to anyone because, you know, everyone, you know, I remember when we had a, a baby shower for one of our kids, somebody said, parenting, it's like religion. They said, anyone who does more than you is a zealot and anyone who does less than you is neglectful, right? We all think like our way is the right, you know, whatever works for you and works for your family system. And I was definitely willing to listen to my wife when we talked to Mary, when, when we were talking about this. And part of it had to do with the fact is, and I write about this in the book too, my, my, my folks split up when I was one. And so I knew that whatever role models I had didn't work. So I was ready to say like, okay, what do you, what, what do you think? Because this isn't working for me. So yeah. I was ready to, I was, I was game for something that made sense intuitively. I, I, I love the thought of that. What you're really doing is you're raising functional well-adjusted, adaptable adults is what you're yeah. doing and you're preparing. You know, but it's interesting as you were saying that, I was thinking about uh, my wife and I's situation and I think we did similar. I'm not sure that we were as, I guess maybe we would look back now and, and say, huh, that's what we did. But me always kind of being, having the coach gene, I would always kind of pull our children to do things that were probably one to two years above what their age would typically say. And mm-hmm. my wife being the nurturer would kind of love on them and kind of counter whatever I was doing. And I, I remember saying similar, our, our daughter now is 29, our son's 26. So they're adults and they're both, they're well-adjusted. They're doing their thing. We work together and uh and and have fun together and all and have conversations that are deep and all and they're adults now which is cool but i i really do recall thinking to myself we didn't have the terrible twos either we we just didn't like get into that we we didn't really have teenage issues and i would think to myself you know i am not going to have arguments with my children over how they wear their hair what clothes they put on I'm, I'm just not going to do that. I don't want to use up that energy. And yeah. it's almost like when you make that decision, it doesn't happen. Is that the way you, is that how you saw it? Yeah. I mean, very much. I mean, what you're saying, it makes me think, and I think it's such a useful thing for leaders too, is don't major on minor things. You know I mean? Is there this, like, what, what's the outcome? What, are, what do I really need to control? Like, like major on the major things, you know, like showing respect, you know, cause certainly when my kids were little, and there were times that they were yelling and screaming and starting to like hit at each other. I'm like, no, you can't do that. I'm sorry. That doesn't work. Yeah. And they don't do that because they just like, you have to hold the boundary, but to, you know, say, Oh, and getting on their case, you know, it's amazing. I am amazed. You know, I do a lot of individual coaching as well as, and, and, and I've done a lot of work with people and obviously the coaching goes from professional gets very personal. And it's amazing to me. And I imagine you've experienced this too, Tim. I'm amazed at how many of us, have internalized so much self trash talk, you know, that internal critic. And where does that come from? And if you think about, you know, and I think about this as parents, 
where do we put the energy? Because kids go to where the energy, we all go to where the energy is. And the fact is in most family systems, we heighten and energize negativity. I mean, you will, it's not, and we'll see it. Like you'll be at the shopping mall and you'll hear parents going, stop that, do that. Like, like the huge bursts of energy, like that level of intensity and emotion. But when's the last time you were out and saw someone going, that is amazing. You're wonderful. That's, you know, like you don't see that kind of energized positivity. And so it's like, we get those that DNA, that is genes kind of stuck, that behavior, those habits are sort of embedded in us and we know it so well, which is why I think sometimes it surprises all of us when maybe we become parents and we hear our own parents' voice coming out of our mouth because like, whoa, and I noticed that that came out a couple of times with my kids, honestly, you know, and, you know, I remember the time, you know, and I'm a big guy, I'm six foot three, I have a big voice and, you know, I remember getting really, I would get, because I came from a family of shouters and screamers and got triggered really quickly. And so I remember, you know, a couple of times when my son must have been two or three and just like, I would just, whoa, this thing would come out and he would just melt in tears. And the shame that I had was like, I can't do this. And I, you know, that was one of those kind of dark nights of the soul. Like, this is not the father I want to be. And I really had to do a reconciliation with myself and say like, and the other thing was to go and then apologize to him. You know, he's two and three, you know, and it's like, you know, I'm sorry, dad. It's like, I lost it there. And I, I'm really sorry. And I want to make it up. To you. And then, you know, it's so funny because again, it's like some people are like you're apologizing to your kids. Like, yeah, because I'm human They're Like, it's okay. Like this idea. And I talked about this with leaders too. this idea, of the superhero myth that somehow you're all seeing all perfect, all knowing. It's like, wouldn't it be great if your parents apologize to you when they're wrong? Because that shows that they're real and that, you know, and, and having those conversations, you know, I don't think I could count on two fingers the number of times my parents apologized to me between the time of zero and 20. And again, it's not just my parents. That was the cultural norm then, I think, for so many of us. Yeah. And, and listen, you know, I think everything we're just weaving leadership in every yeah. aspect of conversation because yeah. what you just said has so much value and it's lacking so much in yeah. just the ability to stand up and say, listen, I messed up here. I want to apologize. I want to say that I'm going to try not to do it again. You know, I made a mistake. I mean, yeah. Could you, could you imagine how refreshing that would be if we actually heard some of the, let's just call it world leaders. I don't even want to get into the weeds of who on what side of whatever issue, yeah. but could you imagine a world leader standing up and say, listen, I just want everyone to know that we made a decision a few months back and it was in all likelihood wrong. We are doing all that we can to correct and make up for it. So please, I would ask for some grace and, you know, we're in a situation where there is no roadmap. Yeah. yeah. We, we haven't heard that. I haven't. All right. So which does lead to a question, though, since I've got someone because I could I could talk parenting here for a long time. But uh, a large portion of our audience is uh, North America. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I love to do when we can is bridge some cultural differences when possible. Mm -hmm. My wife and I have lived some in Australia and New Zealand and traveled and, and sounds like your family's that way. You've been in Europe now for, uh, for going on two years and you 
you've seen probably things that are similar and things that are different. Can you just, I guess if there was something that you would like to share with people that have never traveled or done what you have done, what would be a few messages or learning tips or points or ahas, whatever, however you want to word it, what would you like to share with people about living in Europe or, or, or what you've done that would be helpful for us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think about the work that I've done too, which is I've, I've been, you know, lucky enough to travel and work in 25 different countries around the world. And I was actually, you know, with Zoom now too, I've been doing a lot of virtual stuff. And most recently I've been doing a lot of work with folks in India, right. And, you know, very different culture in a lot of ways. And I was just talking, I was just talking with one of my, my colleagues and clients over in India this earlier this week. And we were saying, we're talking about North American culture and Indian culture and just how, you know, North American culture, we're very hard driving. And I'd like to say we put task first to everything like the task and the job. And like, and maybe if we have time, we'll get to the people side. And Indian culture is completely flipped, where we want to focus on the relationship first. And what's so funny, though, is if you, from a North American perspective, if you actually put people first, and then no one really minds. But sometimes when we, we get so hard charging and driven, is that we sometimes forget the whole people side of things. So I think that's just a, such a useful thing is, you know, in general, if you err towards put relationship before task, you know, even I notice about myself, I mean, I'll write emails like, hey, I need this. And then I stop before I send it. I'm like, oh, hey, how are you? I know, you know, and then I've got a couple of colleagues that I work with. We have the shorthands where sometimes, you know, we get it. You're strapped for time. We have this little shorthand. We say, hey, Tim, assume relationship. And then we just like, that's our code for we're going to like jump into like, get it, got it good, move on. Because sometimes you have to go like that. But if you do that all the time, people start to feel like things being like, you feel like you're just a, an item on someone's to-do list as opposed to I'm a partner in this with you. I'm a colleague. I'm a friend, right? We can't just do that. So I think one of the things that's useful is just, you know, and we're seeing this a lot, a word that's come up a ton since March and the pandemic, both in North America and around the world is empathy, right? And just the importance of empathy. And I write about empathy a lot as well, um, speak about empathy. Showing people that you understand them and care how they feel is my working definition of empathy. And the fact is, showing people that you care how they feel takes time and information and email might travel at the speed of light, but our human relationships take time and showing empathy means showing patience. So part of our leadership wisdom is knowing, yeah, there are, there's a time and a place to go fast and there's a time and a place to go slow. I know we were talking off air, Tim, about the fact that this is more of a long form podcast and like the need to kind of get it. And part of, I think what you're doing is taking the time to build those empathic, caring human human relationships so that we can explore this territory. Cause we can't like, all right, great. So tell me the great thing, like go, go, like, you know, give me your talking points, do Like, and so many of us think, you know, it's just like, it's funny, you know, I write some things for, you know, you read like Inc and Fast Company and like these articles are generally, you know, seven, like they're seven to 800 words, right? So basically, and there's a formula to them, right? It's like, mm-hmm. here's your opening paragraph and then like, here's your three things and then you're closing. And, that, and that's what, that's all you get. And a lot of us, our attention span is like, boom, boom, boom. Like, give me the, give me that. But then, so you have information. And of course, with the internet and the world we live in, we all have access. You want to know about anything? It's all at the touch of a screen. And yet, how many of us take that information and translate that 
into working insight. You know, if you want to get healthy, we all have access to the information of what you need to do. Yet how many of us do it, right? It's the gap between knowing and doing. So anyway, I bring that all up. Long way to answer your question around culture um, is that I think just the speed thing where we are addicted to speed. And I think part of it is we're addicted to adrenaline and we're addicted to dopamine in North America, right? Mm -hmm. You think about all the likes with social media, that's dopamine, right? We are high on all of that stuff and it's, it comes at a cost. So what's the pace over there like? Cause when you bring that up, see, we're kind of a hard charging pace producers yeah. and we could, we could, you know, go, we could peel back the layers on why North America yeah. or America, listen, Canadians and Mexicans would yeah. probably rather not be lumped in with us most sure. of the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's just, let's just say Americans, United States, uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're rebellious by nature because that's how we were formed. You know, we dumped the mm -hmm. tea out and we said, don't tax us. Don't tell us what to do, which means when all of a sudden someone tries to tell us what to do to stay in our homes, wear a mask and all that, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and I mean, it's almost like we are wired to be dysfunctional during a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, it's everything about us in many ways. And, and listen, I've even noticed myself, it's like, don't tell me yeah. what to do. I'm, I live in an RV. I could, I could travel yeah. around and all that, but, but is the, what's the pace like there? Because the it's pace different. here it's, is exhausting if you exhausting. allow it to be. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, there's a famous guy named Edwards Deming who did a lot of work, uh, on I saw him speak. Did you? Anyway, was, so Edward Deming, you know, wait, wait, I got an I was an industrial engineer at Georgia Tech. And so industrial and systems engineers, process quality control. And yeah. and before he passed, I went to hear him speak in Atlanta because he is a rock star in that yeah. field. <laughs> yeah. So you might know his famous quote, which is you put a good person in a bad system and the bad system wins every time. And I think what's so interesting about the American story is, you know, we're all going like going this stuff. And we're also, we're very individualistic society. And we believe that, you know, if you opportunity is here and if you work hard enough, and you, you hustle and you can make it happen, you can. And we all see examples of, you know, it's the Horatio Alger rags to riches, Oprah Winfrey, like, you know, pull your, and so we have, there's this kind of pace and it's, it, and so for you to opt out, like you said, it's exhausting. I think the default is go, 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 burn yourself out. Whereas if you choose to go a different path, you're actually going countercultural, And it's a lot harder to do that when all of the systems and everything around you is saying, go, 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 do, do, do. So I bring this up because even before the coronavirus pandemic, I was living in the Netherlands here for the last two years, things were calmer here. And I thought, and my friend said, hey, how are people in the, how are the Dutch different from Americans? I went, they're a lot more relaxed. And I think I figured out why. They said, why? I said, well, one thing is that pretty much every job, including the people working at the grocery store, earn a living wage, like enough to basically pay your basic stuff. I think that's one thing a lot of Americans don't have. Another thing is there's universal health care. So if you're sick, you're not going, oh my gosh. Like, and even in America, I think about if you're even middle to upper middle class or even wealthier, one good health crisis might wipe out your savings if you're insurance. Like that's, that is hanging over everyone's heads all the time. That's a lot of stress. So that's number two. Number three, over here, if you want to send your kids to higher education university, it's not going to cost you that much money, right? So you're not going to bankrupt yourself. Like I got to save for my kids college and all that. That's number three. 
Number four is when it's time to retire, the state or the country is going to provide for you. So I know some people think, oh, that's socialism. It's, you know, this is, so, this is where we get into the whole label thing, right? This is, you might call it a social democracy because yeah. the fact is you pay in slightly more, slightly more in terms of taxes, but what you get back, what you get back in terms of the benefits and the calm. You know, the other thing that's here too, again, I had kids who were 11 and 13. I was totally fine with my kids going to another city on public transportation and making their way back without any cell phones, by the way, locking their bikes at the train station because we don't have a car here. They're bicycling because there's protected bike lanes. Everyone knows how bikes work. And so it's safe. And people are like, aren't you concerned about crime? I'm like, why? No, there's no violent crime here. You know, um, again, the whole gun culture, there's no gun culture here. So there, so, and, and you see four and five and six year old kids cycling on their own. And I think about the freedom and the autonomy. So what's different? That's different. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of difference. And, but, but really though, there is a, I think there's a mindset, gosh, there's a lot of directions to go here. I had a great conversation with a, a, a good friend recently, and we got to talking about capitalism versus socialism and, and we're big we believe in free enterprise and capitalism, but the capitalism that we really see in, especially the United States, really a lot of first world now has mm -hmm. become something that causes a lot of what you just brought up. Uh, really our medical, the reason it is so expensive and un, is because of a capitalistic structure that is in bed with government and a lot of other things leading to the wages and all. But the, the thing that I would love to go down into there is when someone is, there's a spiritual term I like to use is, is being at peace or rest. Mm -hmm. They, they have the ability to think yeah. more clearly, or this is more better, gooder, whatever word you want to use. And so I, I want to, before I, I really do want to get into this book, but I want to ask you, what has your personal thought process been like in this culture that's different from our North American culture? Well, having, seeing the contrast so vividly makes me realize what are the choices that I want to make. Because part of the Dutch culture, part of the calm too, it's very common. The Dutch, they have a small circle of friends that they've probably known since the second or third grade. And they tend to socialize with those folks. And they're, they're nice and they're social, but they don't welcome like, come on into my social group. They're not that way. They also are very connected to their family. It's very common for people to go and spend, you know, have dinner with the grandparents every Sunday. So there's this kind of sense of that. At calm, and I know for me, and you know, and it's interesting because I recognize in myself the hustle. You know, I, I'm at that, I have that striver, achiever, wanting, like, I got this book, got to get an agent, got to get a publisher, like, move this out. Get, you know, there's a part of me that does that. And what I've noticed, and as I continue to get older too, is that it's the calm. You know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll go back to technology for a second too. You know, before we had all this technology, you can only compare yourself and your achievements to like the 300 people in your social circle or network. But now, you know, if you want to compare yourself, you know, between social media and everything and the internet, like 
somebody else has got more of whatever it is, someone else has got more of it, whether it's more money, more time, a better abs. I mean, you can, you, can, you can make yourself feel bad really quickly in our society. And I think the combination of the American Strive stuff with all the technology has sort of got this anxiety on steroids, as it were, to mix metaphors, you know, like, and so for me, I'm coming away from this with, okay, yeah, do your work, make your achievements, but then find the boundary to close the book or turn the screen off, put it aside and realize who and what really matters to you. Because at the end of the day, or I'll say at the end of your life, what are you going to have left? It's probably going to be the relationships that you have nurtured and the memories you've created and the legacy that you left through the actions you've taken. And it isn't going to be a lot of the other stuff that's really easy to get caught up in. And I think the beauty and the silver lining in this pandemic is that it's giving a lot of us a chance to press pause on the day-to-day busyness and have to look life and death in the face because it's around us. Like, don't go outside. You could catch this virus you can't see and die. So suddenly this is up. And so to me, that becomes this alarm clock, wake up call moment of great. So you've got this moment. What really matters to you? And can you find your own drumbeat and start marching to that? Because a lot of us get caught up in the norms of I got to do more, bigger house, bigger this, whatever they are, right? It's so easy to get, you know, doing that. And so I think there's this real opportunity right now. So that's for me, this place to step back and, and get calmer and quieter and gooder. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, gooder. That's a, that's an actual word. I'm pretty confident <laughs> because I've become more and more convinced that we aren't quiet and we don't think enough, all of us. So here's my, I think it might be a tough question. Maybe it'll be an easy question for you. You're about to step back into this culture with your family. And I don't know if you've put any thought to this. I don't know if this is the first time it's come across you, but I, I, I believe that you have the, you have the brain power to answer this question. I would love for you to share specifically what you are going to do so that you don't get back on, we'll call it a hamster wheel. We'll call it the, all the dopamine. You know, we used a lot of different terms here, Yeah, yeah. but have you put any thought into that? And if so, what specific, and I would really love specific morning routines or not, or, you know, are you going to do, are you going to have days off with devices? Can, can you share some of that with us? Yeah, we have some of those things in place here already with, as a family, we all already do because we realize what happens when we don't have those things in place. So yeah, so for me, some of the things, um, so we have this rule, we don't bring devices upstairs, like the phones don't go up in our house, they are all downstairs. So that, and they all get plugged in, we have a central charging station by the door. So they don't go kids, like none of us, right. And also, we have this thing where after nine o'clock at night, we power down, you know, and I've, I haven't, yet had to but i'll pull the 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 plug on the modem if i had to but you know and there are the exceptions to that but generally we try to like just done because it's so easy to get stuck so you know creating boundaries huge huge piece around that um the other thing is i am a huge believer in building community so i've got a pretty good circle of friends that i check in with and i have some i have a a group i'm part of a men's group i've been meeting with them virtually but we'll probably keep meeting virtually um, just checking in with those folks. And that might be once a week. And I also make a point like over 
the, the pandemic time, I've been doing a family check-in call. In fact, there's one I have got with a group of cousins that are all over the world that meets every other Friday. And that's actually happening after our call here. And then uh, my immediate family and cousins, we, we get together on Saturdays. So just trying to keep some of that regularity and, and just, just connecting and checking in with people because it's so easy just to be to isolate. It is for me anyway. Um, so those are some of the things. And then on top of that, some things to kind of stay grounded. I'm a huge believer in physical activity. So I have different exercise things. I've gone, I've cycled through over the years for a while. I was really into yoga and I got really into running and biking. Then I got into CrossFit and then I'm now, then I, then I, then I had a heart condition. So I'm off CrossFit and I'm now back getting kind of getting back into my next thing. So, but I definitely need to do something every day. And so one of the things I'm really excited about moving back to Western Massachusetts, access to nature, whereas the Netherlands is pretty manicured and urban. So I'm really looking forward to time and nature. If I can combine that with friends walking in nature, that's you know, a double bonus. So doing things like that and really working. And I have a couple of other practices. One of the things, and oh, I'm forgetting his name. I, I stole this fabulous practice from someone. I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember his name because I want to give him credit for it. He's a writer. Um, he has this two minute check in in the morning. And the first, there's three questions. What's one thing I'm going to let go of today? Right. So it's, it's, it's a two minute check in. You write these things down. The idea is like, you know, don't journal for 20 minutes, journal for two minutes because then it'll become a habit. So that one thing is, what's well, one thing I'm going to let go of? What's something I'm grateful for today? And what one, what are the one, two or three things I'm going to focus on doing today? Right. So really, really simple. The author's name is Neil Pariska. I can put those in the show notes and I'm trying to, I'll try to find out the name of the book that came from, but I heard him on a podcast and I went, that's brilliant. Cause it kind of combined a bunch of other stuff I was doing. So I love that two minute check-in. And I think just looking for opportunities for gratitude. I think gratitude is the wonder drug. You know, any opportunity to step back and go, how can I be grateful for this right now? I mean, the fact is we've all won the lottery. The fact that we're alive in this moment right now. Now I know things are hard, but if you think about what is possible, it's kind of amazing that you're actually alive right in this very moment. And, and just all of the things that had to make that happen is mind blowing. Yes. The great thing about it too, is that because of what's going on, I've been using the word reset quite a bit. Everyone, I'll even use a different word. It, it's kind of a do over time. You know, a lot of people's work's going to be changing. We, we, uh, I'm sure you used to do a lot of conferences and face-to-faces. I've only had one client that we've been able to get 10 people in a room and do a strategic, you know, we did a mission values session and it's the only one that I've done face-to-face. And, you know, we had to social distance and all those kind of things because, you know, want to make sure we were yeah. taking care of everyone. But this is a do-over a lot of people have the opportunity that want to to make some changes so I want to shift just a a little bit actually probably a lot in in your book the um, cracking the leadership code you you brought up some of your background and you went back and you mentioned your mother and your grandmother and and that they survived the Holocaust and, and some, some things related to that. I would love for you to, in, in I guess, you know, just a, a minute or two, to, to share that story with our listener. Because one of the things you, you said there that was 
to me very powerful. And I think it's very self-aware is that you really didn't have a model in your household of, you know, either great leadership, parent, whatever. And, you know, we don't want to blame our parents for things, but, but you also gave reason for why they were possibly the way they were. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Happy to. Yeah. So, you know, my, I didn't think of it as unique at the time because when you're growing up, you don't know any different, but yeah, the fact is my mother who's born in Brussels, Belgium in 1935 and, you know, Belgium was occupied end of 41, beginning of 42. So she's seven years old and they're Jewish, my mother and my grandmother. And at this point, my grandfather has already gone back to Poland and he, he was dead as far as we know. And most, so my grandmother put my mother at the age of seven in hiding through the Belgian underground. And she spent three years separated from her daughter. Can you imagine seven to 10? I mean, you've had children. I mean, can you imagine having to put and, and the fear and the anxiety that goes through all that? So, and my mother was moved from place to place. She spent time in a convent. She was given a fake name. She had her hair dyed blonde. I mean, she, I mean, just craziness, right? Imagine like seven to 10. And thankfully they both survived the war. They were reunited, but the trauma, and my grandmother was actually arrested and actually put in a concentration camp and liberated at the end of the war. So they're, so they're reunited, but the trauma and just, so they ended up kind of symbiotically merging. So my mom, when I was born, you know, my grandmother came over and then my dad was like, uh, there's no place for me. He like, I think that split up the marriage, frankly, you know, to be totally honest about it. And um, my grandmother just couldn't let her daughter go again after that because of that trauma originally. And so they were kind of, kind of joined at the hip in some ways, but the joint was out of this fear place. And so I grew up in a house, you know, this is, 1970s New York City and I'm raised my primary parent is a woman who was born in a small peasant village in Poland in 1909 is my primary parent my grandmother who had been through the Holocaust most of her family is dead and she is actually suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and she vacillates between complete quiet to like outbursts and like, like completely unpredictable and I'm just trying to make the best, the best of the situation and you know I you know and I was told I was literally told things like don't ever tell anyone anything that they don't ask for. Like, don't trust anyone more than you have to, because that's the world they knew. Mm. And so that was my paradigm for growing up. And what was weird, of course, I went to public schools and I had friends and life in school and with friends was so different than it was at home. And I think part of my interest in human psychology and behavior and people and ultimately leadership has been trying to make sense of that original experience. And so for me, I didn't know at the time, but there was that story behind the story that was driving their beliefs and then ultimately driving their behavior. And yeah, I mean, they did the best they could. And no, I don't blame them at all. I've completely done my work. And I think we all, you know, anyone who's been through trauma has to go through that process of re-examination of where they came from and realize that, you know, for me, you know, there's some people I know, they say like, oh, I'm this way because my grandmother said like, at this point, look, I'm 51 years old it's not my grandmother anymore. Now it's the internalized voice that I've carried around. And I have a choice to listen to that voice or I can turn the volume down. Now, look, I'd love to say that I've got it solved. It comes up every time, every so often, you know, it comes up every so often and I can catch it quicker. Right. And it's not as intense. And I think that's the journey of development. And I, and I'll be honest, I have done years of work on myself to get to this place. So it's not like it's come easy. It's like, Oh, I just realized this thing. So if you want to do the work, 
the work is there. And I think it is the work of going into it and through it is the way out. So for me, that very much informed, you know, they were my first, what I called in the book, role models of leadership. And they created my first organizational culture. And I realized leaders don't just make a difference. Leaders are the difference. And so that's really where I learned a lot about why I do what I do. Because I think if you really wanted to psychoanalyze me is I think my desire to want to help other people is in some ways a desire that I wish I could go back and help my grandmother. You know, if I could give anything, I'd love to be able to have helped her to be a bit happier in the world because it's hard to see the people that you love so unhappy. Yeah, that's interesting. I was about to ask, which is sort of related to the, you actually kind of took it there a great direction. I was about to ask, what is the difference? There are people that they get stuck in whatever that stronghold paradigm, whatever we want to call it, that their parents create, and they never move beyond it. And then there are people that look at that and make the decision to be different. And and some people maybe break away a little, some people break away a complete 180, some yeah. people go directions of, I don't know, substance abuse. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of directions yeah, yeah, people yeah, go. And, and I've seen it within some parts of my family also and my wife and others. Uh, is there anything else there that you can share that was, I mean, was it, did, was it really the examples you saw around you in New York, your people, or was there something else inside you that said... <laughs> I'll use the Scarlett O'Hara as God is my witness. I'm never going to be hungry again. I'm never going to be like my parents or something. Well, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's like, I know I, I knew I never wanted to be in that part of that, but I somehow knew deep down and especially from my mom is that underneath that there was, they loved me. I mean, and I think if you have that flicker, that little spark of love and you know, it exists, I think that is such a strong building block to build from, right? So, yeah, I mean, and even my grandmother, I mean, it's funny because people used to you know, like say, say to kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember my grandmother saying, just be happy. I mean, she couldn't necessarily model that, but that she knew that's what she wanted for me. It was like, I just want to be happy, you know? And that in some ways that has sort of directed my professional life. It's like, actually, I just want to help people to unlock their potential and in doing so be happy. But I think... You know, I'm a huge believer that love is, it's, it's the leadership killer app. It's the superpower. It's, it's like, you know, and we don't use that word because it gets all kind of funky, like, you know, but I think, you know, if you really want to lead the people that you want who to follow you, you've got to love them. You've got to love, love, love them, care about them. I mean, because this is the thing, and I write the best bits in the book, right? We say that the core leadership is a relationship. At its core, it's a relationship. And the foundation of that relationship is empathy and the fact is we all have empathy for some people and the people that we have empathy for are the people that we love and so if we can just learn how to expand that circle of love so it isn't just your romantic partner or your child right and start to love your neighbor start to love your employees start to love these people and when i say love you know it's obviously it's not a romantic love but it's just that showing them that you care about them and understand how they feel and then empathic concern, the willingness to do something to improve and better their situation. So I think it's, you know, for me, it was, I always had that strength of love underneath that, which I think kind of caused me 
you know, cause I, th- I look back and I think, gosh, I could have ended up, like you said, like as a drug addict in jail. I mean, there's a lot of other ways my life could have gone, but underneath I knew that was there for me. Yeah, that's good. And it's really cool when, it, when you were talking about that, I was sitting here thinking one of the challenges with our world is that we have really messed up that word love. We've messed it up. For some, it goes into a sexual or intimacy, which that's probably part of it, but it's a real small part, truthfully. And then for others, they throw the word around as if it means nothing, like they love pizza, just like they love their spouse or partner, just like they love their children, just like they love, uh, you know, Netflix. And and it's kind (laughs) of like that doesn't compute for a, a lot of us. What was, there's a few books that you've written. Uh, You wrote, uh, I think, a book on trust, Navigating Trust. And we're about to ask a few questions about cracking the leadership code. But how did some of those things that we've discussed in your background or, or things you've experienced, how do they spill into your books? I just finished a novel and I know kind of how things as much as some of us might say, oh, I mean, I just was telling a story. No, part of me's in that story. And so what part of you that we've just discussed or other things went into, we'll just go ahead and start with the Navigating Trust book, and then we'll, we'll go into the Cracking the Leadership Code as we begin wrapping up. Well, I think both, I mean, both Navigating Trust and Cracking Leadership Code, I think part of it was there was a part of me, you know, I grew up in a house where I was literally heard the phrase, those Americans, you have, again, I like grow as a child of an immigrant. This is not an, an unusual immigrant experience, by the way, as a child, as a first generation American, those Americans. So there's a part of me that always felt like everyone else has the instruction manual and I don't, right? That feeling of I'm lost, right? And, and so part of me wanted to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so a big driver for me in writing was, where's the instruction manual? And if I, don't have one, I got to write one and I'm going to give it to somebody else to help them figure it out quicker. And so whether it was around trust or leadership, because to me it was like, okay, so the subtitle of cracking the leadership code are the three secrets to building strong leaders, which by the way, are connection, communication, and collaboration. So what does it mean to connect and how do you connect? And it turns out that's empathy. And how do you build empathy? Well, and what are the things that get in the way of empathy? So for me, I think the story in all of it was yeah, I'm interested in these concepts, but I need the concepts to have an instruction manual. And so, you know, a lot of the, the, the reviews and the endorsements of the book talk about, yeah, it's really, it's a lot, and I also know people love stories, but it's also at the same time, it's super practical. It's like practical, practical is the word that keeps coming up. It's this practical roadmap because I wanted an instruction manual. And I guess if I couldn't find one in my home life, I wanted to write one. <laughs> You know, so that was what, what really influenced and has continues to influence me. It's like, I kind of want to help give people instructions and give them really practical tools and tips. I mean, for example, you know, when it comes to building credibility, like as leaders, we know that we, it's important to be credible. And I think all of us intuitively get that, but what do you do to become more credible? Well, probably the simplest thing to do is show up for your meetings on time. Like that's a really simple hack, right? Just like show up on time because when you do, you send a very clear message. And when you show up late, you send a very clear message. So it's little things like that. And the book is filled with these little tips and tools that again, you read it, go, oh, that makes sense. So it's hopefully it's bringing to life what people might intuitively understand, but they've never really packaged it because they're probably not spending 24 hours a day the way I do, kind of wrestling with these 
issues. Sure. Thinking through it and things like that. Yeah. Hey, I actually went through recently and read the book and I've got some highlights here. So what I'd love to do, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm putting you on the spot, but, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm actually going to ask you about a few of my highlights Awesome. And let you either expand on it or clarify or, or, or share. And some of them might be things that really spoke to me. So, which is, which is interesting. Uh, one of them here, uh, there's a statement that says self-awareness is the foundation of emotional intelligence. And I actually discuss and talk a lot about self-awareness and am constantly asking myself questions like, what if everything I have thought to be true in my life is false? And I especially ask that a lot of things, you know, about, we were talking earlier about some political items and some observations and all. And I go, you know, what if, what if it's not capitalism? What if it is socialism? What if it, you know, what if I was raised in a place that said certain things? So anyway, that's when that's me there, but can you talk briefly about self-awareness and what we can all do? to be more self-aware? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, self-awareness, it's a, the willingness to hold up the mirror to yourself, first of all, and take an honest look and on, that's the hard part, right? Cause like, it's like, ah, I want to look at my good side. You know, I don't want to look at the, the blemishes, take an honest look at really what's there. What are your strengths? What are your less than strengths or what do you want to call them? Weaknesses, you know, taking a look at, all of that. And the other piece that's huge around self-awareness is self-awareness doesn't come just from yourself. It's actually getting feedback from people around you to grow your self-awareness. And in fact, for my take, you know, if I was a betting man, the number one thing I would do if I wanted to develop my, my leadership is I would go and seek feedback from others, you know, and not just my mom and my puppy who are going to tell me that I love that they love me, but actually he, people who will give me the honest truth, both what I do well and what would be even better. I find that is the number one accelerator for development because it's amazing if you open up the door for honesty and say, Hey, I'm trying to be a better leader. What are some things that you think I could do differently that would be better in the future? And if you open up to that, people will tell you, you know, we don't see ourselves as well as we'd like to. And so, as we start to realize that, we also start to understand the, the gap between our intentions and the impact that we have. Because ideally, you know, leadership is sort of a managing perceptions business, right? It isn't about what I think about myself. Like, I think I'm wonderful. And, you know, it's, it's what are the people who choose to follow? And I really think it's a choice, right? Following is a choice. What do they think about me? And how do they see me? And am I... My journey of self-awareness is to ideally align how I see myself with how they see me. And so that I'm congruent around that. And when I do that, I don't have to worry and doubt that, hmm, is this coming across okay? And, and, and for you to be clear on that, I mean, there are things that I know about myself and I get the feedback constantly, such as, when I get excited, I speak really quickly. Part of it is, you know, I'm from New York City. I, and the other thing I do when I get really excited is I stop finishing my thoughts because I'm already on to the next thought. So that's something I've had to continually work at. And I probably will continue to have to work at the rest of my life. So that's part of the self-awareness. And yeah. so I know, for example, if I'm giving a speech where it really counts, I'm going to rehearse that sucker 
more times than I think I need to, because I want to close those thoughts and come across that way. And I'm going to slow down. And in fact, I sometimes will, if I have the printed script, I will put in big marker on top, slow down as a prompt to remind me to do certain things. So, you know, all of us need help. No one is perfect. And so it's finding the people, the support, the clues, the tools, the prompts that are going to assist you on this journey to ultimately have more impact. And I think that that's so important if you're considering what's the legacy that you want to leave, because that's going to be what people are left with. So yeah. that's interesting. I just wrote down the word legacy up here. I wanted to ask you about it as we wrapped up. So that's very cool that you tied that together there couple of things I was actually kind of one of my issues is I'll, I'll have, I'll hear a dialogue like you just said, and I'll have like three or four things firing here, but yeah. there was one thing that you brought up and I actually went to a note that I had highlighted and it is, hold on a second. I think I just lost my scroll. And that is that leadership is more one-on-one -on -one versus um, uh, anyway, connected. I think leadership is a one-on-one -on -one relationship is what you, is what you yeah. say here. And one of the things I've observed, and maybe this is in ministry circles, maybe it's in business circles also, but there is this thought that a leader is being up in front of large numbers of people and large yeah. could be relative. It could be 10, it could be 10,000. Yeah. Can you contrast those thoughts because that is the opposite of the one-on-one -on -one relationship. And I just want to observe something the way you spoke about dealing with your children earlier to me is the model for that one-on-one -on -one relationship. Many people think leader means I've got, and, and they use that word impact that you just used. I've got thousands of people that listen to me or come to my building or come to whatever, yeah. tell us, tell us that one on talk about that one-on-one -on -one relationship and the value there. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, one, a couple of my heroes are a couple of guys named Jim Coozes and Barry Posner who wrote the leadership challenge. Um, so they're kind of heroes and mentors of mine because they in some ways democratized leadership. And what I mean by that is, you know, there used to be this, and you might be familiar with this called the great man. It was called the great man theory of leadership. And the idea that there was this great man who could lead crowds and this is, you know, <laughs> very male centric. And so growing up, if you said, who's a leader, I'd come up with names like Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, right? Again, kind of larger than life people. And yet what they found in their research, Kuzis and Posner found, is that when you ask people who are the leaders that have had the most impact on their lives, it's always someone who's close to home, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, a teacher, a sports coach, or maybe an early boss or manager in a, in a, in a business environment. So what this says is that actually, as much as we can admire Nelson Mandela from afar, they don't have the same kind of impact that the people that are close to us have. And yes, you can have, you know, I can go and, you know, hear some great orator speak and be, whoa, whoa, whoa. But like, in terms of actually moving my process forward, it's the people who I connect with. And that's why I say leadership is a relationship built on connection. And the strongest way to do that is one-on-one -on -one because ultimately we all want to be seen. 
And you can't just look at the crowd as a leader and like, I see you crowd. It's like, no, I want you to see me. I want you to see me. I mean, why is Amazon doing so well amongst other reasons is because they figure out this algorithm that somehow goes like, Hey, Tim, while you're buying this, I see you and I think you'll like this too. And you're like, that's amazing, right? So we want that tailored, personalized experience in everything because what they recognize is the human desire to be seen, to be valued, to be understood. And so from that place, you move from you know, follower as complier to follower as committed and right, the ability to do that. So that's why, yeah, and, and I think, you know, in large organizations, ideally, you have these layers. So let's say I'm a CEO and I have an executive team of 12. I need to have one-on-one -on -one relationships with all 12, and those 12 have direct reports. So ideally, that's how this plays out. And there are things that we can do. We can do some signs and some symbols in the culture that show this. But, you know, and Gallup's done this great research on this, that ultimately what it comes down to, you know, 70% of the variance between lousy, good, and great culture is due to the immediate leader. So, and if you ask anyone in a large organization, if you've worked for two different managers over your career, is it the same experience? Like it's, you know, same company, it could be like two different planets because that immediate supervisor, that immediate one-on-one -on -one relationship, that lays the foundation and sets the tone for what this relationship is really like. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. You know, it, it kind of brings up, I think this is a great question for us to begin wrapping because it's almost as if when we put the name leader with someone, they begin to not be a leader. I don't know if that makes sense, but the fact that the fact that there are people out there that are having influence and there's so many words here, but that they have influence without knowing that they do almost yes. qualifies them for what we're talking about. That when all of a sudden we say, Oh, Tim is the leader. It's almost like I become null and void at that time. That could be a little bit harsh, but but do you, does that make any sense? Oh, it makes complete sense. I think there's this two-way shadow around leadership that, you know, from, first of all, there's the projection shadow from the follower, like you're the leader and suddenly I invest, you must know everything. And it's amazing. These really competent people suddenly ask you the most basic questions that they know the answers to, but they, they default. They're ready to like give their power away. That's the one thing. The other thing is, again, the, if you're now in this formal leadership role, you know, people get intoxicated by it. Right. And they're like, oh, I'm the, and then I stop. Like, it's, it's about service. Like, which part did you forget about that? You know, and there's some basic things, you know, and this is, I know we won't talk names, but for example, we know, and like this has gone on for millennia, that people follow the example of leaders. Like, right. It's not, not, it's not do as I say, it's do as I do. So, for example, just as an example, if you actually believe that people should wear a mask, you need to wear a mask, right? Otherwise, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it's like, I remember my kids took a, took a, I'll just shift, shift it slightly now. My kids took a trip. <laughs> Good, because you're, ste you're stepping on my yeah. toes. I am not a mask I fan, know. so don't be there careful you, here. <laughs> there you go. My, my kids went to our local food bank, right? And they were with their teacher. My, I think my son must have been in the fourth grade. And, and they had a bunch of candy there, like at the food bank. And they noticed that as they were walking out, their teacher took two pieces of candy out and ate them in front of the kids. And my kids were, because again, 
this you've destroyed everything right so it's this whole sense of like simple simple things like that's just that's part of the relationship thing like how human psychology works and so to say well you know i say this but you know it's up to ah, it, it makes things very confusing so all of which to say is yeah there is this i am the leader now and and i mean i've been there i know what that's like because it's there's something about that power that that's that's a dopamine hit that we get and again we're back to dopamine so we have to proceed with caution is that recognizing that and and step back and what's the real reason and unfortunately i think for many people particularly in business world is the only way to increase your salary is to step into a leadership role where i think there are a lot of people who'll be very happy if you said you know you can actually be a paid skilled expert contributor and we're going to keep increase but they say no if you want to actually you know make a significant more much more money you need to be a supervisor or a manager and they may not or they may or may not have those skill sets and yet then they're like i'm in this role and what am i going to do i'm going to do what i saw my leaders do which is basically talk loud and tell you what to do and you better like it so yeah i'm totally in agreement and, with and you. never That's make right. a mistake i think you even in the book talk about ego which we won't yeah. go into here uh Big question, probably, I don't even know if this is answerable. So that kind of gets you excited about what I'm about to ask. <laughs> Currently, in the field that both of us operate in, which is, you know, leadership, leadership development, business, there's entrepreneurship fits in it and all that. But let's just keep it with leadership. Mm-hmm. What are some things maybe just one or two, and maybe we'll try to do it quickly, that really, really bother, disturb, you don't like about that field. And then what's one thing, I want to counter it and finish on a positive, what's one thing that really encourages you that you see out there when you're interacting either on Zoom or face-to-face with people and, and I don't know if you, we can say they're trends or anything. We may have just addressed it. I mean, that ego could be one yeah. that really bothers me. But I, I guess something that really bothers you about this whole leadership uh, genre field and then something yeah. that encourages you. Um, something that bothers me, and it's connected to what we just talked about, about ego. It is, I see there are leaders who are clever enough to try to game human emotion for their own advantage. And to me, that is just masterful manipulation. And I'd say it's, it just pains me because it's not genuine and it's coming from a place of actually just trying to manipulate by using whether you want to call it the science of influence and persuasion and, and things like that. And when I see it, uh, 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 and yeah. unfortunately we're in election season here mm-hmm. and again i don't care which side you're on yeah they're all using it and it makes me nauseous i'm in total agreement there okay so excellent all right what encourages you what encourages me is that i think it's 59 percent of the workforce now is gen y and gen z so i'm a gen xer myself and oh my gosh, I am just so, you know, we used to give all the millennials a hard time. Like, oh, they're all entitled. Oh, they want to be the CEO next week. Mm-hmm. You know, this, these two generations, I am excited 
because they refuse to play by the old rules and they are forcing change uh, on so many levels. And I'm really curious to see what comes out. We'll call it post pandemic time in terms of all of it, you know, whether it's our, whether it's our culture, our society, our organizations, I just think that we are ready for some serious disruption. And I think there are people who are really ready to shift that. And generally, when we look at major transformations, they're often led by young people. So I'm inspired and uh, I'm really inspired by the leadership that I'm seeing through these generations. Yeah, that's excellent. And I, I'm in agreement. I think this reset or whatever we want to call it that we're going through, we are going to see a new breed of, we'll use that word, leader, influence, whatever you want to call it. And we need that. Listen, a lot of, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the tail end of a boomer. And, uh, you know, it, it, I can assess and look and say, you know what, we have not done very well. And so let's, let's see, let's pass the mantle and let's see what others can do. It's a tough world. There's a lot going on and there's a lot of moving parts. So excellent. Very good. Uh, we could continue talking, but I just want to go ahead and kind of wrap up here. How can people connect with you? What would be the best way for people to reach out if they wanted to, you know, get books or just interact with you? Yeah, easiest place to go is the book has its own website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com, which is spelled exactly the way it sounds. And that'll take you right to the book page. While you're there, you can actually uh, download the first chapter of the book and preview it. And that connects directly to the alanhunkins.com website. So you can browse around there, connect with me on LinkedIn through there. You can also learn about the work that I do as a coach, consultant, trainer, speaker, and all with individuals as well as with teams or organizations. And it's all under the umbrella of helping people to become better leaders. Yeah, excellent. And as I said earlier, I did get the book. I have read it, highlighted it, loved it. And I recommend that people get that book and read that also. What's next for you, Allah? What's next? Well, from today, today, uh, in 11 days, my family is moving back to the USA. So it's, you know, there's definitely stuff on the other side, but right now what is staring at me are a lot of moving boxes and packing stuff up and trying to leave this house that we've been renting better than we found it. And so that's what's next. Yeah, we move back on August the 5th and then I'm back on the other side of the pond and uh, continue with trying to make the world better as I can. Awesome. Well, blessings to you guys as y'all move. And I hope that it is a smooth and enjoyable process. Final question. The title of our podcast is Seek, Go, Create. Three words there. Which one of those words jumps out at you? Uh, Maybe, you know, not that one's better or anything, but which one's the first one you like? Ooh, that word and why? Yeah, the word that jumps out at me is go. Um, and I and I think the the reason why is it's the action, right? I mean, it's the first action. And I think action is what changes the world. It isn't just thinking about it. It isn't talking about it. It's doing it. And to me, go is it's taking that first or second or third or 30th step. So that's what it's go. Because when you go, you have now done something that you didn't do before. So, and I'm a huge fan of, of going. Excellent. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially when the, in the midst of all the packing and everything that's going on. Yeah. 
If you would like to continue this conversation, uh, I encourage you to do that and we welcome it. Go to seekgocreate.com, that's seekgocreate.com, to comment on this episode post or to contact us directly. If you visit the site, give us your best email address there and you will never miss out on an episode and We'll make sure to keep you up to date on bonuses and other items that we like to gift our listeners for free and uh, things that I know you'll enjoy and like that dive in even deeper on some of our episodes. You can also find us and communicate on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those we are Seek, Go, Create. Thank you again for joining us. We look forward to connecting with you on the Seek, Go, Create podcast in the near future.